My name is Penny Lacasso and I am the world's first happiness hacker. Imagine a world where human happiness and well-being drove our decision-making. A world where technology was used to amplify human potential rather than replace it. The Human First Podcast is designed to encourage you to explore your curiosity about the future of humanity. Our conversations are focused on building skill in intentional adaptability, creating the foundation to positively influence the future for yourself, but also for others. Join me here each week as we put humans first. Tiffany Bora, welcome to the Human First Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you today. It's always a pleasure to have an opportunity to connect with you. Now, today I want to tackle um, our conversation in two parts. So the first thing I want to do is explore a little bit about who you are as a human being. And I'm really interested in these conversations around how you're personally intentionally adapting in the context of the current environment um, and what's, what's going on. And then the second part is about tapping into your expertise yeah, as a faculty member and vice chair of um, digital biology and medicine at SU, because I think that's also equally interesting. But I want to start with human first. Sounds great. So the first question I always ask everyone is tell us who you are as a human being. <laughs> that is a really big question, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it who is. am I as a human being? I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I'm a daughter. I'm a scientist, I'm an optimist, I'm a writer, I'm a musician, I'm a lot of things. I always love that question because it's not about putting people in boxes by talking about what you do. It's, it's often opens up a conversation about the things that are important to you or that matter. With that in mind, the next question I want to ask you is almost an extension of that. And I think this question is so pertinent in the context of the space that we find ourselves in. What does it mean to you to be human? To me, what it means to be human is to be both cognizant of how I am connected to the rest of life on this planet, but also mm. to be looking for the things that make me distinct as a human from other uh, living things, but also distinct as an individual from other humans. I think that's one really important aspect of humanity is our capacity and our thirst for diversity. I've no, never heard anyone talk about what makes us distinct. So as a biologist, because I'm really interested in your scientific bent around that, what is it that makes us distinct in your view? As humans, as a species? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's, I'm a molecular biologist, so there are molecular answers to that, which are probably only interesting to me. Uh, but there are, there are things about us that change our cognition, the way we see and sense and respond to the world around us. There are things that are different about us in terms of how we interact in groups. Sometimes we can see things like that that uh, we see in other animals. But the reason that we talk about those similarity, similarities is because they're actually fairly rare. Right. So there, for example, funny example, there are very few animals that we know of besides humans that have sex for fun. Dolphins are one of them. Bonobos are another one. But really, you know, for most living things, sex is just a business proposition. It's just getting it done. Whereas so for me, that's just one of the small one little thing that that makes us different as a species. Um, I think, too, how we how we collaborate, how we innovate how we come together, you know, there are only a very few species that make music and we don't actually know how many of those species are using it for pure pleasure 
or whether it's fundamental communication, right? When a bird sings, why does a bird sing? Why does a whale sing? Well, I know humans sing for lots of reasons. I sing for some reasons too. And so for me, that's, that's really interesting. I, sometimes I wonder if our view of how special we really are is only a result of not being able to hear other animals about how they think about themselves. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. Because I, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but I often say, I'd love to know what my dog is thinking. My, I don't know about your dog, but my cat makes it very clear what she is thinking. So whenever I see folks who are working on things like AI translators for uh, animal speech, I'm like, I, I don't need it. I know exactly what she wants. I know why she's not happy. It's like when my son was an infant and he was screaming. Yeah, I always knew exactly what he wanted before he could talk because he was still able to communicate. Have you ever lived in a country where you didn't speak the language? No, I've traveled a lot, but not lived, no. So when I lived in Egypt, um, you know, my Arabic was, when I got there, was zero. But, um, and then came to appallingly bad, but still I had some Arabic. But it didn't really matter that I couldn't speak the language. I always made myself understood with varying degrees of success or hilarity. But it didn't really matter that we didn't have a common language. I was still interacting with people. We had a common Mm. set of needs. And they were usually able to figure out what it was that I needed. Oh, I completely agree. I think I, I definitely understand the dog. But I'm interested in terms of more her internal dialogue about me. (laughs) do you sure you want to know that and the language no I actually say sometimes it's nice to have someone that's not going to complain um given we're talking about what it means to be human at the moment paint a picture of your current reality for us and how that's changed since COVID-19 hit so I live in the Bay Area in California so we are midway through week five of our lockdown So my reality has gone from being a very hectic, crammed, busy schedule. I work three jobs, actually. Two of them are running companies that I founded or co-founded. I went from that where my life was basically run through Google Calendar um, and trying to make sure that our family life was down to the minute of having things done on time. Whereas now my reality is much slower and I'm finding a lot of gratitude for that. You know, neither my husband nor I are traveling right now, which is very unusual for us professionally. And that just kind of means we have more time in the day. We're not getting on airplanes. We're not getting in cars. We're not getting on bicycles. We've recaptured a lot of that time that I can see now we were spending just being busy. And it's interesting to me now where I'm, you know, I cook dinner every night at home. This, you know, because we can't go out, can't go anywhere else. But it's interesting now that when I start that, I have a nice distinct end to my day instead of just having to drop whatever I'm doing because it's time to make dinner to get it on the table properly. We have time to have my son help with some of the cooking. My father lives with us as well. So we have dinner together every night. And so life in that sense is a lot slower and I'm finding a lot of gratitude for it. I have time to exercise every single day. I have time to play my guitar every single day. And I swear it's because I've recaptured all this time that I used to just spend being busy. From a biologist's point of view and based on what I do as my job, 
I spend a lot of time looking at data and thinking really hard about what's going on. And I do also, because of the way my businesses are being impacted, I have some uncertainty and some anxiety financially about the future. But mm. I'm also being really careful to be mindful every day and be grateful for what this slowdown is actually giving me. Like just a couple of hours ago, my son came to me and said, for my school assignment, I have to uh, build a tower of 100 Legos. Do you want to help me? And normally I would say, no thanks, sweetie, get out of my office. But instead, I was able to put everything down that I was doing and go spend 40 minutes helping him build a Lego tower because I have the extra 40 minutes in my day. It's a good thing. This is intriguing me at the moment because I'm having many conversations where people, as you say, have gratitude for the slowdown and what that's bringing into their life. I'm really curious, though, of how this is. I mean, I don't think any, anyone knows how this is going to play out, you know, in the next week, let alone the next six months. But what I'm really interested in is, are people going to hang on? So now that we have been in these moments of saying, oh, my gosh, slowing down gives me all these things that I was missing that I didn't, I wasn't even cognizant that I was missing, that actually truly make me feel good and make me happier and make me grateful. Will we still, like, will we change our behavior to create more space for those things? Or will we just go back to the way we were? Well, I think it won't be an option to go back the way that we were for quite some time. I mean, on the time scale of years, I think there are still going to be travel restrictions. There's still going to be work from home requirements, if not mm -hmm. requests. So I think some of that work is going to be done for us. But I am really thinking a lot about how it was. I didn't build my life the way it was, you know, three months ago. That's just kind of what it turned into. And I could point at every decision I made along the way that led to that state. And every single one of those decisions was reasonable at the time. And so right now, what I want, what I don't want to do is when we're through this current crisis, two years from now, whatever it is, I don't want to keep mindfully sliding back in, uh, mindlessly sliding back into behaviors that I know made me unhappy because I was forced to stop them by this pandemic. So I'm curious to see what's going to happen, for example, when my husband and I have to sit down and have the talk about how much travel we're willing to do in the future. Mm. Because we're having such a good experience right now, not traveling, even though it's costing us income, it's costing him scientific opportunities, but you know, we're actually not that unhappy at home right now. So I think what we'll need to do is drill down into the things that are actually making us happy and then figure out a variety of ways to get to those states instead of just having one idea about how to do it that might not reflect reality in two years, five years, 10 years. But you know, this crisis in many ways is a gift. It's a hard gift and it's a gift nobody asked for, but it's still a gift. And I wanna make sure that I'm learning from it and really structuring my life around that. I had a similar experience last year. My mother was in hospice last year because uh, uh, she was dying. And I remember that moment where I walked out of a meeting and I thought to myself, I am an hour closer to being dead and this is what I have to show for it. And it really wow. changed how I structured my day, how I structured my relationship with my work. And uh, it's one of the reasons that caused me to exit full-time employment as a staff member because I just realized every hour I spend is an hour I never get back. That's um, such an interesting way to look 
like you say, you know, I've just, I'm an hour closer to death. Was, was that really worth it? Like, I could not agree with you more in the context of, and even the language you're using of this being a gift. And I, I mean, you know, you and I have known each other for a little while now and are familiar with each other's work, but it just feels like this beautiful moment of inflection that we've been gifted, where everyone was running on this hamster wheel that, that had no end. Um, and the only way to stop and enable us to sit back and really consider the things that matter um, to us as individuals, but also to the greater good of humanity. You know, as you say, I think we needed something significant and painful to create the space for that to occur. And I think in many ways, you know, it's almost, I, I keep saying it's like mother nature has sent us to our metaphorical bedrooms and sort of said, you know, I've been yelling at you for a while now. And right, you're not time listening. out. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm going to give you time out. And you know what, until you sort your shit out, you can stay in there. And like, it's, it's, it's weird, and uh, it's a bit woo-woo, which is not what I'm about, but it just, for me, it, that's what it feels like. And I also feel like it's like, well, if we if we can't sort things out now, if we can't take this moment, which is why I'm so interested in how these these beautiful things that you're talking about, how do we actually make these habits um, and these things become the norm again? Um, I'm really interested to see how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's some mindset uh, shifts there, right? Like, it's really easy to believe that every email needs an instant answer. And you know what? 99% of the emails I get, yeah, they don't. It can wait. Whatever it is, it can wait. I can remember I used to be uh, frustrated with my husband when he worked a lot. Uh, and I would say to him, you're not a heart surgeon. Whatever this is, it can wait. And yeah. then I found myself right in the same position where there's no difference between urgency and importance. And it's just easy to reflexively treat everything as equal urgency. Um, similarly, when I think now about digital work that people are doing, video calls, I, I mean, I worked from home for seven years, so I was really used to this, but I felt those cultural pressures with what, what do you mean you're not in the office? Or what do you mean your kid has walked into your office and talked to you while you're, while you're talking? I'm like, I live in a house with people in it. Like this is, this is just how it works. But what I'm seeing is a softening of a lot of those mm. responses in ways that I think are nice. Uh, it's kind of nice to see what your colleague's house looks like. It's kind of nice to see them cuddling their dog, right? Like it's, it doesn't make me, the fact that I'm talking to you right now with a cat in my lap doesn't make me less intelligent or less educated or less thoughtful. It just means I have a cat in my lap right now. And I'm liking some of these softenings that I'm seeing in uh, work culture and in personal culture. It's really interesting because people have been saying, we've been running these sessions called Human Hour with people around the world, where we basically do um, exercises that are scientifically proven to make people happier and um, cultivate human connection on Zoom calls. And one of the things that comes up consistently is people are saying that they're loving seeing their boss, you know, with all this chaos in the background <laughs> at home. And there's nothing they can do anymore to hide it. Whereas before, as you say, people working from home would try and make the environment look as professional as possible. Whereas now it's like people just aren't bothering and, and it makes people more relatable. Like you say, it makes people more human. And why are we hiding this stuff when we've all got the same stuff in our homes? You know, it doesn't make any sense. So talk to me um, a little bit before we get down to the science stuff, because I'm equally interested in that, but this conversation is taking another direction, which I'm fascinated in. 
I think second to flattening the COVID curve, um, the biggest priority we have for humanity is maintaining mental health in the context of what's going on at the moment. So you mentioned earlier, you know, obviously there's, a, there's some anxiety for you in the context of what's going on with your businesses. Talk to me about um, how are you proactively managing your mental health at this time? You've got a young child, you know, as you said, you've got a husband at home. What are you doing in that space to make make sure that you you can not just just get through this from a survival perspective, but you can come out the other end and thrive? So some of the things I'm doing are just really basic things like exercising every day, playing music every day. And I don't just mean listening to music. I mean, actually sitting down with my guitar and with various levels of success producing music. That's really nice. I've been, I think, talking on the phone with people more than I normally do. Believe it or not, I am a total introvert and I would be completely happy to be at home with my cat all the time, which as it turns out is what I'm getting. Uh, so for me, that's not particularly anxiety inducing. If anything, the anxiety is having everybody else at home at the same time. Mm. So fortunately, um, my husband for Christmas gave me a pair of noise canceling headphones and I basically live in them now. Um, our family is also generating a set of new norms or rituals around giving each other physical space and mental space but at the same time, constantly connecting with each other. I noticed yesterday that my son was stepping into my office, which does not have a door, by the way. Um, he was stepping into my office a lot and like hugging and kissing me. And I, at first I was like, does he need attention? Is he hungry? Like what's going on? But then I realized that every time I walk past his room in the back of the house, I stop in, I kiss the top of his head and then I keep going. I don't actually talk to him, but I'm just kind of, kissing my son because he's sitting there and I can. So it was interesting for me to see that he was, I'm, I'm assuming, engaging in some kind of similar touch pointing. And I think those touch points are something that I'm drawing on more and more often, whether it's through phone calls, whether it's through music, I'm exercising quite a bit. You know, I just came back from a walk in my neighborhood and it's gotten warm in California, so it's gorgeous out again. Um, and but then in terms of things like financial anxiety, you know, I am a very direct person and I don't use a lot of um, fairy dust or rose tinted glasses, which doesn't always lead to a good mental health space. But in this particular case, I cannot control everything. I cannot control the business. I cannot control travel restrictions. I, I cannot control these things. I haven't done anything wrong here. And so I'm able to let go of my usual urge for control because right now I can't get it. Um, wantin' ain't getting, as we say sometimes. And right now, wantin' ain't getting. So I'm just really trying to focus in on the things that I can control and that actually matter. And the rest of those things I am putting in a little box in my mind and putting it back there. And I, I, I don't know if this is Zen or what it is, but I'm really just trying to acknowledge what I can't control. I want to take you back one step. You said that your family are cultivating new norms around helping you, you each other have space. Can you give us some practical examples of what that looks like? Because I think that might be really helpful to some people at the moment who have full homes and they're trying right. to juggle everything that's going on. So we're working a lot on headphone norms. So the wearing of headphones, the being, uh, so even to the point where 
like our, we have a piano and we actually have a digital piano and boy, am I glad we have this digital piano because you can put headphones in the digital piano and then anybody can play anytime they want, but the rest of the house isn't hearing it and isn't being disturbed by it. Can't do that with my electric guitar, unfortunately, but can do that with the electric piano. So that's really helpful. Um, we're also pacing ourselves in terms of meals and when we can expect to be together and when we can expect to be apart. So normally mornings are times that are more protected for school and for work, whereas things start getting a little more flexible around 1 or 2 p.m., 2 p.m., let's yeah. say, where my son knows then that he can come in and I won't have scheduled any meetings for that part of the day. I'm still trying to work, but if I get to a document 10 hours later, it's not that big a deal. So we're trying, we've, we've kind of put in these norms around when folks are doing particular things. Um, and of course, bandwidth now is a, another um, issue. It's another resource. And so we're making sure that when somebody needs stable bandwidth, like when I'm talking with you right now, I made sure to declare from 1 to 2 p.m. on Wednesday, no video, no YouTube, no Minecraft, like none of these things that we usually do, this is protected. And then we look each other in the eyes and say, yes, 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 so that nobody can claim they didn't understand. And today, when I requested the time to uh, spend with you, Penny, my son immediately said, well, I have peace and play at two o'clock, so I'm gonna need the bandwidth from two to 2.30. And we were like, okay, yes, 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 yes. So he was also able to have equal standing and to request his time. I'm trying to think of some other examples we've done. We're, we're trying to take time to like take walks together, but also be allowed to have times to walk alone. And our son, he's eight, and we don't wanna be helicopter parents. So we've also worked out ways where he can go outside and be by himself in a way that we all feel safe, but is still giving him some agency and some privacy when he needs it in order to have it. Yeah, there's, there's just okay. kind of small things that we're doing like that. I love the split between the morning and the afternoon. And that's something, I mean, my son's not that much different in age from yours. That's really worked. And also incentivizing him to get things done in the morning. So we've got the space to, to do the work or I've got the space to do what I need to do. He can do his schoolwork and then sort of saying, well, if you get all of that done and we're sorted by one o'clock, I'll have the time to go riding bike with you. Exactly. And yeah. And, and, and it's, one, it's it's great because things get done and everyone gets their space and their opportunity, but also it's given me that magic in the day where I actually really look forward to the bike ride together mm -hmm. and we chat and talk. And again, that's something we didn't have a lot of in the past other than on a weekend or things like that. So to ride a bike nearly every day has been amazing. Yeah, we play a lot of board games now. Are you playing board games oh, yeah. in your house? <laughs> we, I've started doing a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and there's like, it's, it's like a community jigsaw puzzle and it's on the dining room table and we all come at it at different times or together to try and solve this problem. And I haven't done a jigsaw puzzle. I don't think since I was not like that since I was a child and I've like, gee, I never realized how much I enjoyed this and, mm -hmm. and the way it's connected us around a shared problem. It's, it's really interesting. So yeah, board games, definitely. We've been doing a lot of board games, but I'm always a lover of that. So I want to now take you into your area of expertise, okay? You're, you're faculty and vice chair of digital biology, biology and medicine at SU. And what an amazing sphere to operate in in the context of the current environment. But I'm really interested in what you're curious about and why at the moment, 
in terms of COVID-19 and your area of expertise? So one of the things that I am most interested in as a molecular biologist is the fundamental biology about how this virus works. We're seeing a lot of in the news right now about how it's affecting individuals, how people are getting sick, uh, how it's affecting our healthcare systems. But for me, the reason I became a molecular biologist is because I'm really interested in how things work. And so for me, I want to know how this virus works. I want to know what the individual parts of it are doing. I want to know what the individual mutations are doing. And I want to know how the virus is interacting with our immune system. Now, I have really big public health reasons for wanting to know that because I need to know how long is this going to go on? How should I be advising people to behave? How should I be advising companies? But from the real, like, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, like my, my heart, the, the part of me that made me a biologist and that makes me a biologist every day, just wants to know how it works. Biology is amazing. It's in some ways very complicated, but in other ways very simple. And so what I want to know are the details so that I can extract a mental model for how this thing works. Because once I understand how something works, then I can figure out how to respond to it. So I'm interested in that. One of the things I'm thinking about a lot right now is actually the immune system and immunity. We are making a lot of assumptions about what's going to happen next. Like for example, we're assuming that like with many other viral diseases like chickenpox, if you get it once, you can't get it again. It's a mm. reasonable assumption based about you know, what we know about viral biology, but we don't really have a lot of data in this case showing that that's really what's going to work. Uh, that's how our immune system is going to work. And so when we're planning when people can go back to work, when we're going to have a vaccine available, all of these things really hinge on how our bodies respond to the virus. And we still don't know. So frankly, when I'm looking at the news every day, there's only so much doom and gloom I can take that's helpful for my mental health. You asked Tiffany, what are yeah. you doing to support your mental health? Not reading the news all day is one big thing I'm doing to I support my agree. mental health. Yeah. <laughs> but I am donating a lot of time of my day to be reading either the scientific literature, the primary scientific literature, or um, publications like The Scientist that are actually meant for scientists to be reading. Because then I'm getting more into the data, I'm getting into the experiments, I'm getting into the innovation. And that stuff all makes me happy. Whereas reading about the collapse of healthcare systems in certain parts of the world is really not very good for my mental health. So that's, I think that's the thing that I'm, I'm really interested in today is this, this immune system thing. It's because it's, we have to understand how this virus spreads among people and then what it does inside our individual bodies if we're going to have anything like a coherent, multi-pronged response to fighting this pandemic. Stepping away from the media, and I completely agree, I just have to see, and, and what I've observed is that the people that are spending all the time in the media, the people who are perhaps really struggling to cope, like really, really struggling, it's, it's fascinating. Um, what I'm really interested in is two things. One is you spoke about immunity, but if we, before we get onto that, I want to talk a little bit about what, in, in what you're reading, the positive stuff that you're reading, what have you, what do you know that perhaps is not in the media that is interesting around the virus? Well, some of the things uh, in terms of the biology of the virus. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are you um, finding? So 
You know, I, th I think for me, one of the most fascinating things about this is just how powerful very simple interventions are. What I saw when people first were told, oh, wash your hands, people got really anxious. They're like, no, give us a drug, give us a shot, give us an antibody. Whereas for me as a biologist, I'm like, soap and water, woohoo! <laughs> like, that's awesome because everybody's got it. And I really yeah. like simple tools. And so what I'm seeing scientifically is people are trying to drill down to the simplest possible ways things are working and ways we can disrupt it in order to uh, get quick progress. I know for me, um, you know, tech is kind of my job. And so people kind of immediately want to talk about CRISPR and stem cells and all these things. And I'm like, no, whoa, whoa, slow down. You know what's awesome? Soap and water. Let's talk about soap and water. So there's, there's an interesting wrinkle there. And just from the scientific perspective, some of this is in the news, but I don't know how much people are really noticing it. But the way science is being done around this is vastly different than anything before. There are just all of these cultural habits or the ways of doing science that are so uh, ingrained in us, things like not sharing your data until you can publish them or not showing other people your data again so they can't steal from you but then maybe they don't get to actually look at the data all of that bullshit is getting swept away or yeah. having to care about the politics of the company the country where your collaborator is working because it makes a big difference you know what everyone's fighting a common enemy now and i am just really thrilled about that i'm also seeing a generosity of spirit among the scientific community that is really interesting and a generosity of resources. Normally, scientists never have enough money. We never have enough money, we never have enough equipment, just for a variety of funding reasons. But now what I'm seeing are websites that are set up specifically so that scientists can donate equipment out of their lab, or specifically so that scientists can donate their time to working on other people's projects. We never even have enough time or money for our own projects. And now we're seeing a global effort to donate them to other people. I think that's spectacular. And I was preparing um, a, a talk I, was give, I gave this morning where I was talking about a lot of these collaborative efforts, right? Through Kaggle and GitHub and all these places. And I actually had to stop my preparation because I was crying because I was so moved by all of these things, you know, 37,000 GitHub projects right now are being run just for COVID. That's open source, open data, around the world collaboration, 37,000 projects. That's insane. And that's just on one platform. So for me as a scientist, it's not just about the biology, but it's about how we do science. And that's really changing here. And I hope we can hold on to a lot of these lessons and changed behaviors as well. Think of the progress that that will enable, as you say, like a more collaborative effort rather than individuals sitting, you know, in a lab on their own trying to solve a problem. Right. Or pharmaceutical I... companies holding on to a drug or holding on to a vaccine because they'll have the patent and they can make more money. That mm -hmm. mindset's going away. It's just about getting the innovations out there to as many people as possible, as safely as possible as fast as possible. We've come off the back of almost like the technological age and I feel like this moment is moving us into a human age and it's those sorts of things that are occurring that give me hope that you know we will start to be more human um, and care more for each other. 
in terms of the decisions that we make. I want to talk about immunity because I'll never forget when I first met you and saw you talk at Singularity um, in San Francisco and you mentioned you had a son and you mentioned that basically most of the time he walked around like a little grub and you were like, get as dirty as you can, you know, because that's what makes my, if my memory's correct, that's what makes us healthy, you know, is all of these germs and allowing ourselves to sort of, that's how we've evolved over time by building immunity. And it was so against the grain of how most parents now live and, and how clean we are. And I'm really fascinated because I don't know if there's any information out there, but I'm really fascinated in why this virus has taken off in some communities and not in others. And it feels to me like a lot of communities or countries where we are very clean, it has gone nuts. And I just, I'm, I'm really interested in whether we've become too clean and it's become to our detriment in terms of our immunity to things. When you saw my talk and when I talk about the microbiome, um, which is all the bacteria and the viruses and the fungus that live on us and in us and are supposed to be there, at a baseline state, these things are really, really strong components of our health. And yes, there's evidence suggesting that being too clean is actually bad for your immune system and for a bunch of other processes that happen in your body. But where we are right now today with the severity and how acute this pandemic is, we are way away from equilibrium, way away from steady state. And so, yes, you're right. It's not on brand for me to be washing my hands 10 times a day, but I'm doing that right now because the situation we find ourselves in right now is not the way it's been recently. So I think in terms of a cost benefit analysis, I absolutely think people should be washing their hands right now because that is the, the best tool we have. But when things go back to normal, whatever that means. I hope this awakens in us a kind of a, a, just an awareness of our, our biology. Our bodies are an ecosystem. You can think of this virus as being something that has invaded that ecosystem and kind of changed the balance of power. When we get this pandemic under control, which I am confident we are going to do, perhaps not anytime particularly soon, but it will happen, then we'll be at a place where we'll be able to be thinking some more about our biology, how it works, and all the different tuning knobs we can use in order to keep ourselves as healthy as possible. And thinking about your microbiome, thinking about cleanliness, all these things is just one of those tuning knobs. And we have lots of other ways. I also frankly think people are going to be thinking a lot about food and nutrition. Mm, Um, When folks were stockpiling food or still are, are stockpiling food, the food that you're stockpiling is shelf stable. So it tends to be highly processed food that stuff's not good for you. So you're not actually helping your body or helping your immune system by relying on that food instead of fresh fruits and vegetables. Now, my husband did just send me um, a picture from the grocery store of the completely ravaged produce aisle because I wanted onions. So we're trying to, again, figure out how to be realistic about these various things. But I think it's important to keep the broader context here, right? Our, Our bodies are things that interact with the environment. And there are actually lots of ways that we can bias that interaction to be healthy. I'm all about how do we provide hope? Because I think without hope, what is there? Yeah, it's what keeps us going as human beings. But I'm equally interested in kind of what's got you concerned at the moment. You know, is there anything that's got you concerned at the moment in terms of what's going on? I have financial and economic concerns looking forward. I'm concerned Mm. about people getting back to work. I'm concerned about protecting vulnerable people and vulnerable businesses as they're trying to 
go on going on, right? To, to keep on yeah. living. Even if we're not working, we still have bills we have to pay. And I've been pleased to see how governments are trying to step in and pick up some of that slack, but I don't know that it's going to come fast enough to, for, for people. Um, I also have a bit of concern about how we're so focusing all of our medical resources on fighting COVID that, you know, what happens to folks who have cancer? and who need chemotherapy treatments or um, have a, a dumb accident and end up in the emergency room. These are all confounding factors that I think about a lot. I admit they're not, the, the financial stuff is keeping me awake at night. The, the knock-on effects um, aren't keeping me awake at night because you know we can't do a whole lot about that except stay home, don't take any stupid chances. Now is not the time to learn to snowboard or to go up on your roof or any of those things. Don't do any of those things. So the, those are the things that I think about quite a bit. What? Yeah, and I completely agree. What I find really interesting though is, I mean, you're in the space of innovation and disruption, especially with your, um, your work at SU. I'm really intrigued at what a beautiful opportunity this provides for us to reset the foundations in terms of reskilling people and investing in innovation. Because like you say, I mean, what is the new normal? And if, you know, the reality is a lot of businesses perhaps won't get through this. So how do we create the next generation of jobs and the next generation of innovation to support us if this happens again? Do you know what I mean? Like, I just feel like there's a beautiful opportunity here to help people reskill and to really invest in the next reinvention of what that looks like. But I think at the moment that's perhaps a little ways away whilst we just try and get through the immediate. Well, one of the things I think we can do, and this is something that I always encourage people to do, is to think ahead and then work backwards. So as you're going through this crisis, think about what you want life to look like 10, 20, 30 years from now. Think about how it feels, what you're doing, how you're seeing your family, what you're eating, how you're moving around. And when you have a sense of what you want your life to look like and feel like, then you can start working backwards to figure out what are the ways that I can get there. Because the problem is if you think forward, you might end up in a dead end and you might end up getting stuck somewhere, uh, what we call low energy states uh, in science. If instead you work from your your perfect vision, and then start working backwards, sometimes you can see possibilities that you didn't even know were there. So that is one thing that I would really consider looking at. So for example, when people are talking about what's the future of digital education, what do you want learning to look like? What mm. should it feel like? And how much of that really matters, whether you're in the same physical room as someone? And if you're able to say, here are the things that I value and I know that I don't need to be in the same physical room. Now you're empowering yourself to design new solutions that meet that end state with all, all the preconceptions of what we've done before. What a great piece of advice in terms of, especially as I say, in the context of where we are now, if we can envis envisage, like we were saying earlier, you know, what are the things we love from now? Like what, and how would that look in the future in terms of what would be the ideal state in visual, like visualizing in 10 years time? as the perfect life and work back from that. I think that's, that's brilliant. Talk to me a little bit. One question I always ask at the end of every interview is what one question do you wish people would ask you that they never do? I really wish people would ask me why I'm a biologist. <laughs> people have this idea 
that scientists have no emotions, that we don't get excited about things or that we don't see beauty. And I, I've never understood that because for me, the natural world is this beautiful, awe-inspiring thing. That, you know, I get out of bed every morning wondering what new amazing thing I'm going to learn about the world around me. When I travel with my family, you know, when my husband and I went to Machu Picchu years and years ago, you know, we spent a lot of time looking at the snails because it turned out they had some pretty amazing snails at Machu Picchu. Like who goes to Machu Picchu and looks at snails? I do because snails are amazing. They're so amazing. Their biology, the way they interact, what they eat, like it's, it's fantastic. So I wish people thought why, about why we do what we do, right? You don't become a biologist for the money. Spoiler alert, kids. Uh, you don't do it for the money. You don't do it for the sex. You don't do it because it's got an awesome work-life balance. Like You don't do it for any of those reasons. You do it because the world around you is so beautiful that you can't stop looking at it. And for me, understanding how something works makes it more beautiful, not less beautiful. So that is the one thing I wish I could get people to understand is there's so much beauty around us and understanding how it works makes it more beautiful. What a beautiful way to end a great conversation. So how can people find out more about you and what you're up to at the moment? So come on by my website, which is just tiffanyvora.com. Um, there's a bunch of videos there, my articles, my podcasts, lots of ways to get in touch with me. Um, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn really, really frequently. Those are the easiest ways to stay in touch digitally. Uh, and who knows, maybe sometime we'll actually find ourselves in the same place in real life. <laughs> Doesn't that, it feels like a bit of a, um, an enigma at the moment, doesn't it? The, the fact that, you know, you and I were in San Francisco together, I think last August, and now it's like, when will that ever occur again? Like when in the future? I was supposed to be in Australia at the end of March and the beginning of I April. Know. And I was so excited to come back to Australia and nope, didn't happen. So it'll no. happen one day. I'll be there. I'm sure. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us today on Human First. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much, Penny. Thank you for joining us today on the Human First podcast. If you loved your experience, please take a moment to leave a review on either iTunes or Stitcher and provide us with a rating. If you'd like to access the show notes or learn more about what we're up to in the context of humanizing the future, jump on over to humanfirstpodcast.com. See you next week.